Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, if you turn in the middle of your Bible, you'll hit Psalms, generally speaking. Proverbs to the right, and then Ecclesiastes comes right after that. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And we'll be reading verses 9 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We're glad to put one in your hand. You can keep it. If you don't have one, mark it up, write in it. That's the best thing you do. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting with verse 9. All, right. all the pages have stopped rustling. I think we're all there. All right, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered. And he sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. What was written uh, was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished of these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Lord, we ask again that you would anoint this time your spirit would fall afresh on us as we open your word. Your word is forever settled, Lord, but now let it have its perfect work in us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. These are, you guys have all heard of King Solomon, right? Wisest man ever lived. Remember, as a young man, God said, I'll give you anything. He asked for wisdom. Young teenager at the time. Most teens would not ask for wisdom. Give me a billion dollars, right? But he asked for wisdom. God gave him wisdom, and he went on to accomplish incredible things. One of the greatest kings the world has ever seen, but definitely the wisest as far as just intellectual knowledge that was given directly from God and actually discernment from God. There was no one like him in the history of the world. And these are King Solomon's closing words of advice and counsel to the congregation of Israel. So it would be like a state of the union message, although it's written down, but it'd be like a State of the Union uh, speech or a State of the Union, uh, here's what I want everyone to know, this congregational message. And as the eternal Word of God, still in your Bible, still in my Bibles, as I mentioned, it's forever settled, these are still equally instructive words for us nearly 3,000 years later. And we're a congregation too. We're a congregation of New Covenant followers of Jesus Christ. So we, we're sitting in a congregation hearing the same words as if Solomon was speaking directly to us. And it's here in this brief 12-chapter book that Solomon, he reflects on his own life and observations through the lens of both failures and what God has revealed to him. He's speaking to all the people. But the primary focus of Ecclesiastes is a warning and advising to young people. 
teenagers, young adults, those starting out in life. But it's not just for them. It's equally applicable for all of us not to drift, not to forget God, not to forget his authority and his design for our life. The very name of this book, you ever wonder what Ecclesiastes means? The very name of this book, Ecclesiastes, underscores that Solomon is greatly exhorting the people, encouraging the people to listen with open ears and more importantly, what? Open hearts. Jesus said, don't just hear with your ears, hear with your heart these words. The English title of the book of Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek title uh, Ecclesiastes, which means preacher. That's what it means. The word in the English means preacher. The root word, ecclesia, means congregation. So the root word is congregation. The preacher to the congregation. That's what the name of the book means. The Hebrew title for this, they say, well, that, that's great. You gave us the English. You gave us the, the root, which is uh, in Greek. What about the Hebrew title for this book? Well, the Hebrew title means one who calls or gathers. One who calls or gathers. The, pic the composite picture is clear, right? A congregation, a preacher, one who calls to hear the words of God. And so Solomon, he's calling out to the young people, but he's also calling out to the middle-aged, to the upper ages, and to consider the span of their life, the span of their days, and how they will use them. Will it be futile and empty or honorable, well-pleasing to the Lord, and a life that's ready for eternity? Now, Solomon knew from experience, I don't know how many of you stu studied Solomon's life, he's kind of a very complex individual in all of Scripture. Wouldn't you agree? You say, I, I don't quite get this. He knew a lot about God, and he had a thousand wives, right? How did this happen? How did he make these decisions? Didn't he allow some things into the temple? Yes, all this stuff is true. Um, and by the way, the, the thousand wives thing, it's not probably as much as you might think of. I mean, this guy really liked ladies, you know. Um, uh, a lot of that was about power and kingdom building, right? Because kings, one of the way, they, they would, other kings around the world would offer him brides because he, it was an honor thing. There was a lot going on there. But without getting into all the reasons that happened, I'm not, it wasn't, it wasn't God's plan. Solomon should have rejected those things. But Solomon knows from experience the emptiness and the regret of living a life in pursuit of worldly success. He did for a period of time of his life. Pleasures and a life of ease and power rather than service and surrender to God. That's what happened in Solomon. He had a season where he really did get really impressed with what he was doing. And yet God still that time, because God said, I'm going to make you, he still had wisdom all during that time. Kind of a strange thing. There's a lot of things pre-New Testament that, that will kind of surprise us in the Bible. But he went through a long season of his life where he squandered the immense blessings of God and focused on his own wants, his own desires, building bigger buildings, building bigger kingdoms, doing all kinds of stuff that people marveled at 
and it probably was some of the wonders of the world at that time. Of course, it was all destroyed later by Babylon. Rather than during that time doing the will of God and every single thing in his life to the glory of God. And he comes to see Ecclesiastes, if you read the rest of the book, chapters 1 through 12, he comes to see that all that was what's called vanity. Right? Vanity. It all goes up in a puff of smoke. All the stuff that say, Solomon, you're the greatest. You've done this. You've done that. You're the greatest king. You have more, you're, you've made money so plentiful that silver is like dust in Israel at that time. He's somewhat similar to Samson. You guys remember him? In this way. Both Samson and Solomon, they, they come full circle in their life in seeing that the very unique, both of them had unique power poured out on them, right? Wisdom for one, and Samson was the strongest man that ever lived. They've both come full circle in seeing that the unique blessings and anointing they were given were always to be used in the spiritual calling of their life. It was always to be used in the spiritual calling of their life, not for their self-indulgence, which both of them did, or their self-interest, which both of them were guilty of. So it makes perfect sense that he opens and closes the book. He, he's writing this book at the near ending point of his life. This is near the end of Solomon's life. So it makes sense that he opens the book and closes the book with a title of not king, but preacher. He comes back to see that God gave him all of this for a calling not to achieve stuff, not to be something, but to do something in the name of the Lord. So he opens the book and he closes the book with the title preacher. The word preachers used seven times in the book. Probably not a coincidence either, right? Number of perfection. Seven times the word preacher is used in the book. Three times in chapter 1, one time in chapter 7, and three times in chapter 12 here in the closing. And the emphasis is to remind and to exhort and to warn and to shepherd the people, which is what he was called to do at all times. But for a good portion in the middle of his life, that's not what he was doing. He closes his life thinking more about people and more about the Lord and less about being king. Less about being king. What's the parallel for us today? What's the parallel for us right here sitting on Genitow Road, Chesterfield County, American citizens, suburbanites, cityites, whatever you are out on the farm, whatever you, you, where you live? What's the, what's the parallel for us? Aside from us being a congregation, we can match up that. We say, all right, it was to a congregation, we're a congregation. Uh, they needed to hear, we need to hear. What's the parallel for us that God's recorded here? Well, like Samson and like Solomon, we've received some pretty rare and unique blessings unrivaled in human history. Did you know that? As Americans? Or living in the last 100 years, period, especially living in the last 50 years. We generally, right now, if you're living here in Chesterfield County, living in the United States, we generally have more freedoms, more access to information, more mobility, more security, more conveniences. We got Wawa. We didn't have that 20 years ago, right? No, we have more conveniences. They, Wawa and Sheets, by the way, have run out every mom and pop 
gas station in town. But that's a different story altogether, right? But we benefit. It's lit up. It's gorgeous. We can find Clorox there. We can find, <laughs> we can find a Slurpee. We can find you know, anything, a, a sub. We can find gasoline. All in the same place, right? So we've got conveniences. We've got food and water in abundance. To name only a few things that people down through history couldn't fathom, they were just wondering how they would eat the next day. And that was, that was even Americans 150 years ago. We've been given very unique blessings. But are the blessings that God has given and the goodness of God, are those things that God has given us all resulting in a greater love for God and a greater dependence on God? Let me ask that question again. Of all that God has given us, these things that are unique in all of human history, that we would be all wealthy Romans, are all of these things causing us to have a greater love for God and a greater dependence on God? For the most part, I think we'd all agree, no, they are not. Typically, they are taken for granted. Just as silver started to be taken for granted in the days of Solomon, it became no big deal. Everybody had silver. He platinum. He gold. As I've mentioned before, I didn't coin the quote, but I've mentioned this before, a smart person learns from their mistakes, a wise person learns from the mistakes of others, and a foolish person learns from neither. Right? We all have a choice to look at history, to look in the scriptures. What has God already shown us that we should be learning from? I don't look at Solomon and say, well, if he got away with living in the middle of his life that way, I'm going to follow the same path. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't do this. He's saying, but do do these closing words of chapter 12. The closing words of chapter 12 allow us to learn from the past and to redirect our hearts in submission to God, and his love for us, allowing, what happens then is allowing us to flourish in our walk. And that's why I've titled, if you're taking notes this morning, What Really Matters. What really matters? What really matters to the Lord? What really matters in our life? If you're taking notes, we get to our first point here. Seek the truth. We start off in verse 9 and 10, and moreover, because the preacher was wise and Solomon's speaking of himself here, not using the title king, the encourager, the exhorter, the one delivering the word of God, that all these would be uh, uh, synonyms for preacher, the one who is uh, proclaiming the truth of God. And because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered. It's interesting that Solomon had all this wisdom from God, and yet he still had to ponder. I don't care how much you know, you need to meditate on the Word of God. Well, I already know a verse. You'll need to ponder it, what God wants you to do. And he pondered, and he sought out, and he set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. Oh, uh, people would just seek the acceptable words before they speak, before they send a text, before they send an email, before they say something. Now, this passage is ultra-instructive to me as a pastor because obviously when I see preacher, I, I, I recognize or I res it resonates with me in a, in, a, in a sense that may be different uh, than most people. But it's a strong reminder to me from the Lord what matters in prayer, 
and preparation as it leads all the way to the pulpit. Prayer and preparation all the way to the pulpit. And as it relates to people, because ultimately God gives words to be spoken that people are built up and strengthened, not that you impress them. Solomon could have impressed people. That was, he did probably do a lot of that in the middle of his life. Then he came to realize, I don't need to, I'm not here to impress. I'm here to turn them to the fear of the Lord and the ways of the Lord. Effort will be required of me. Intentional truth-seeking. Wisdom-seeking effort. It takes effort to study. He, Solomon says it's wearisome. If you, you study a lot. Those of you that are still in college, you say, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, right? You guys remember all-nighters? Boy, it was so much easier to do that when you were like 21 or 22. I, I can't even fathom an all-nighter anymore. Uh, we have to kind of partially do one on our flight to Israel. I never look forward to that part of it. But at least it's so cool on the other end, you kind of get this boost of adrenaline. But, uh, but truth-seeking, wisdom-seeking, it takes effort. But understand, truth isn't just a concept or something we can hold to. Truth isn't just something uh, conceptual. Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. Truth is Christ himself. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. As we seek in his word, we find truth, but we don't just find truth. Guess what else? We find Jesus himself. We find Christ in his word. That's why he said he is the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God, John chapter 1. And seeking that truth will be rewarded. Do you believe that God will reward when we seek truth? You know he promises it in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Him is truth. Truth is him. Some might say, I, I did that for a month and I never saw my reward. So I gave up. I've met many people that have kind of, some have flat out told me that, and some have kind of hinted in that direction that, oh, I kind of tried that. I did the whole church thing. I did that. Really? Well, that was your problem. You did the church thing instead of actually finding Christ. The church thing will never do anything for you. You're better off just going on and hanging out at amusement parks and vacations and stuff that actually can kind of occupy your mind. Now, first off, this, if someone said, well, I, I did that, I tried that, didn't, I didn't get any reward out of it, that's not the attitude of someone who's been saved from their sins and from death and from hell and by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. That is not the attitude that the Holy Spirit instills in someone who's been radically changed. Secondly, diligently takes time. And time is not the same. Did you know that the rewards in your life will be on a different time schedule than the person sitting the right, left, in front, and back of you? God, there's not a cookie cutter for time for people. So that's why we don't compare. Well, what about them? What about this situation? No, it's different for each person. Rewards are based on different needs. The rewards of God, you need things different than the people around you. God actually prepares your needs, and he prepares the rewards for those needs. Let's also appreciate that this counsel is perpetual. It, it's continuous. It's everlasting. This counsel is for all time. Me as a pastor, I'll need to do this all my life. What do I mean? Well, I'll need to seek. I'll need to ponder. 
I'll need to pray. I'll need to seek out. I'll need to set things in order. Did you know that life is full of constant course corrections? Those of you who are parents, how many times have you had to say, all right, let's family back, get, get back together. We've gotten off track a little bit. Does that ever happen? Or is that just in our house? <laughs> ever happened in your personal life? You, you're, you're just kind of, I, I kind of have been wasting time over here. You have to set things in order. There's a, there's a constant course correction of life. Don't think that's weird. That's normal. Pondering things. Lord, what do I do here? What, what, do you, what do you want me to do? There's 10 ways I could answer this scenario. Which one's the right one? And sometimes you have to wait until God gives you the go-ahead. It's okay to wait. Right? You've made it this long. We can wait through those things. And so these are going to be important for you know, my entire life, but yours as well. Uh, for me personally, I did not and I cannot come up here and preach words of wisdom and truth unless I have sought them out by prayer, spending time with the Lord, waiting on His leading, and studying the Word in an attitude of prayer. It's, it's impossible. D.L. Moody said, you, you might as well not even preach if you're not going to preach under the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't preach at all. But you need, to, you need to parent under the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be a manager under the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be an effective nurse or whatever you do for a living. You need to do it under the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have to spend that time seeking the Lord, seeking His wisdom, seeking His love. And of course, he's, He wants to lavish all that on us, but He's required us to spend the time. Solomon He's speaking from experience and setting an example, but he knows that all teachers are first students. All teachers are first students. you agree with that? All teachers have to first be students. It doesn't matter who you are. And all students have to study and to seek and to learn. Paul wrote to Timothy, study to show yourself to prove unto God. You're going to have to put forth that effort. I don't know why God did it this way, but that's the way he's done it. Even, even before sin, he told Adam and Eve, to go out and tend to the garden. They were going to have to put forth effort. That was before sin. So that God has always called us to be servants. And one of the ways he's asked us to serve is to study his word and to wait on him and spend time hearing from him. What did Jesus say we're to seek? He said, seek first a really big paycheck. A big bank account. A better 401. No, he didn't say any of that stuff. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you as needed, if needed. Because not everybody's even gotten some of those things, and God still allowed them to survive. Seek first the kingdom of God. Let me ask you, are you seeking the kingdom of God? Are you seeking to hear God above everything else? Are you seeking the kingdom of God? Are you seeking to hear God above everything else? You might say, well, I'm, I'm not a pastor, so I leave that seeking to other people. I leave that seeking to Christian leaders or evangelists or you know, people that are actually over ministry. They do the seeking. I just kind of I make sure I'm a really good message listener to her. <laughs> no, everyone is called to seek and wait on the Lord. All are called to be disciples, right? Disciples. I'm a disciple, you're a disciple. We're all called to be apprentices of who? 
of Christ himself. The one shepherd is mentioned here. We'll get to that in just a minute. All are called to be what? Witnesses. You can't witness unless God is speaking a witness to you, directly to you. We can look at these two verses through the lens of different audiences and impact. And we can look at this through different audience impact. And what I mean by that is we, if we look at these verses and take preacher out, we can look at it through some different audiences, and yet the impact and the meaning stays the same. Let me read it in a way that makes sense, this uh, kind of illustrates the point. If I were to say, moreover, because the father was wise, he still taught his children knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many truths or proverbs. That fits. I could put mother in there. That will fit. Moreover, the mother was wise, and she still taught her children knowledge. Yes, pondered and sought out. I could put employer in there. You see what I mean? The meaning doesn't change. The impact is still the same, that all of us are called. God says, I've called you to lead and to speak and to minister, but first you have to be gleaning from me, hearing from me. Are you seeking truth? Let's look at the next point as we look at these last few verses. Receive the truth. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. Not a word we use that often, huh? And the words of scholars like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Verse 12, and further, my son, be admonished of these things, making of many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Now that seems like, where is he going with that? We'll come back to that in just a second. But back to verse 11, the words of the wise like goads and uh, these well-driven nails. It's implied here that the wise person, after having sought wisdom and truth, will convey it to others. It's implied that, that it won't stay. Uh, in other words, our, the wisdom God gives us does not stay insulated. It actually touches other lives. But equally, that the wise, those surrendered to the will of God, also receive wisdom and truth into their lives, and it has visible benefits. They can see the benefits, and other people would actually be able to see the benefit. The wisdom of God has visible benefits, not just invisible. Now, there's a lot of invisible work of God taking place in us. There's no disagreement on that. But the longer you walk with the Lord, the visible work of God is apparent to yourself and to others. It's not surface knowledge of truth, but life-changing and it's life-directing. If you would have met me 27 years ago or so, you would see I'm a totally different person than I once was. It's life-directing. It's life-changing. And many of you would have the same testimony. John Owen said, it's truth alone that capacitates any soul to glorify God. Truth alone that capacitates any soul to glorify God. Our soul before Christ does not glorify God. It glorifies what? Sin and ourself. After salvation, the more we walk with the Lord, our soul wants to glorify God. We're not looking for the spotlight on us. We're looking to put the spotlight on the Lord. Part of Solomon's problem in the middle part of his life, he wasn't putting the spotlight on the Lord, he was putting the spotlight on himself and his achievements. In other words, truth that is flowing and living in us compels us to glorify God. Just knowing truth and not applying truth will not transform us, nor will it glorify God. Did you know a lot of people know a lot of truth? Did you know a lot of people know that smoking can kill them? Did you know they don't care? 
Did you know a lot of people know that drinking a six-pack every night is really bad for you, and yet they'll do it anyway? I know, I'm not, I know people get addicted to these things. I'm saying they knew it before they got addicted. Truth alone is not transformational. Application of truth is transformational. But when the Word of God moves from our head to our heart, it's active, and it leads us like a lamp unto our feet, as the Scriptures tell us. Notice the language employed by Solomon. Goads, say, what is a goad? If you're not in the farming world, or in the herding world, in the shepherding world, you're probably not used to this term, goad. Uh, goads were used to prod and motivate animals and herds, get them back in line. Nails, and he even uses the word well-driven nails, and that's good. I, I did two years of framing houses when I was 18 and 19. So I was in the best shape <laughs> back then, uh, you know, Walking on those two by fours, I was fearless back then. And, and, we, and we all, it was a big deal if you could drive a nail in with two hammer swings. Two hammer swings was a big deal. I wasn't that good at it. Once in a blue moon, I did it. Yes! <laughs> it didn't happen often because you'd have to hit it so square perfect to nail the full force has to go down. But well-driven nails, you've seen stuff that you picked up and say, this was not well-built. You ever seen this? You, you, not only were they not well-driven nails, they were hardly nails, right? You know, they were like these tiny little things. Like, this, is, this couldn't hold together a Mattel toy, much less, you know, a picnic table or something like that. So, you know, well-driven, we understand that it's important that something's done right. But well-driven nails were to do what? They're to strengthen and secure. Like, a lot of carpenters like to use screws, and certain things, because it actually even makes it that much stronger. The grooves hold tight. And so we see these two pictures, prodding, getting these animals back in line, and then well-driven nails, secure and strengthen things. You don't want your house built cheaply. You want it built with well-driven nails, right? Jesus said built on the rock, didn't he? Well-built. But when the word of... Um, when we look at these things we see that genuinely receiving wisdom and truth from the Lord. When we receive the Lord truth, it corrects us. It prods us back into the right place. I don't know about you, but the Lord prods me plenty in life. A good whack here and there, right? Putting, putting us back in the right place. Prodding us. Motivating me. How about you? Motiv the prod will motivate, get me in the right direction. Beyond where our flesh necessarily wants to go. We'll say the cattle doesn't really want to plow the field today. Well, that's going to be your job, <laughs> right? But simultaneously, it says these well-driven nails, simultaneously the Lord secures us, strengthens us from things that might pull us apart, might tear us apart, might rip us apart, or actually weaken us. Because, you know, I've been through hurricanes. When things are built well, they can sustain a Category 2, Category 3. Nothing sustains basically Category 5. But, but you, have, you, you don't build for the, well, you can't always build for the worst case scenario, but you do build for the normative. And life is tough, so God wants to strengthen us for those things. And of course, notice the single source of all of this wisdom and truth. 
the end of verse 11, one shepherd, capitalized shepherd, by the way, in your Bible, one shepherd. One shepherd is the source of all of this. And it's hard to miss the footprints of Jesus throughout these last few verses. Jesus as the preacher. We know he was a preacher. He came to preach righteousness. He preached that the kingdom of God was coming. He preached to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We know that preacher applies to Jesus here. We know that the well-driven nails, Jesus was a carpenter. He was a master craftsman. We know that applies to him. Shepherd, we know that applies to him. He said of himself, I am the good shepherd. He's the one shepherd mentioned here. Even the word scholars in New King James, if you read from the New King James, you'll see the word scholars. Some of your translations will be different. The literal translation is masters of the assembly. Jesus is the master of the assembly. All of these apply to him. We see the footprints of Christ in these very words. He's the one master. He's the chief shepherd. Now, verse 12, And further, my son, be admonished of these things, making many books there's no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of multifaceted views of this verse that are simultaneously true. But there's always the primary context versus the secondary. Does that make sense? You have a primary viewpoint, and then you have secondary things that they're not ancillary, they're not unimportant, but they're not the primary, and so they're still valuable in teaching something, uh, the, the secondary meanings. But uh, let me give you some examples of things that would be secondary, but still simultaneously true to verse 12, because you might read verse 12 and say, what does this mean? Further, my son, be admonished these things, making many books, there's no end, and much study from the word of the flesh. Is this saying that I don't really have to ever study? Is this Because it just said I needed to study earlier, right? Do I, need, uh, do I need to study? Is it wrong to be an author? Is it wrong to write a lot of books? No, none of that's what he's saying. But for an example, studying becoming a PhD, and say you study and get your PhD, and you have many accolades, and you're authoring many books, you can certainly achieve a lot of success and notoriety, but none of that will bring you peace. You'll, your flesh could still be weary inside. You know, people that have done all that have still committed suicide. They've still not found peace. You would think, well, why, why would they do that? The authored book, they actually helped everybody out with their, with their eat, eat this and don't eat this and do this and think this way and meditate on this and Far Eastern religion and all this other stuff, and yet... They seem to have no peace. Solomon's saying, you can achieve a lot of stuff. You can really rack your brain, but unless your brain and your heart are in tune with God, it won't refresh you. It will just, you can literally go mad from studying. You know people down through history have done that? They've, they've learned multiple languages. They've done all kinds of stuff, and they're voracious and an appetite to learn, but if you're not learning from the feet of God, it's not really going to profit you much. Even from a Christian standpoint, if a pastor were to study, 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 but not pray and spend time with God, it's not going to worth, be worth much. So he said, you can do all that. You have to do some of that, but it should always lead you back into communion with God. It shouldn't lead you on a wild goose chase of just learning, 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 learning of information. Do you know lots of people know a lot of stuff, and they're very unloving people? You ever met people that are really smart and know a lot of stuff, and you're like, but they don't know how to love anybody. 
They're always learning. The scripture said, always learning, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Learning lots of stuff. None of those things can bring peace. It's also true that you can study yourself into deeper and deeper thought and never reach a place of rest. You just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. Philosophers have done this, right? And they write books on philosophy. And they're more mixed up at the end than when they started. You ever see, you ever took a philosophy class in college? You're like, I don't get these guys. They came up with mathematical formulas for really dumb stuff. You know, they, couldn't we just all agree that this is obvious? You know, I'm oversimplifying. That's why they never asked me to be a philosopher. But, <laughs> but given the audience, but given the audience and given the context here. Solomon the preacher is exhorting the people, let me paraphrase, using a geographic picture and a New Testament picture of verse 12, the, the, the most primary, what I believe is the primary central meaning to the verse 12, even though the other meanings certainly would be valid. Let me read it this way. It would say something like this. And further, brothers and sisters of soaking up much truth and teaching without learning and applying it and living it out will become like the Dead Sea rather than the Jordan River. That makes sense? And further, you can listen to, well, I listen to Chuck Swindoll and David Jeremiah and Greg Laurie and everybody. I listen to everybody. I don't apply any of it, but I can tell you all the messages that I've ever listened to, and I know so much, but, but you're like the Dead Sea. It's coming in, but it's not going back out. And it'll just wear you out, and it certainly will wear other people out. James 2.26, so he said, James said, so faith without works is dead. Know a bunch of stuff. Study, study, study. Read, read, read. Know a lot of scriptures, but there's no love and life coming out from it. Solomon says, "Don't don't do that. If you're going to study, it should draw you near to God, and it should be the life of God coming out of your life. Last point as we come to a close in verse 13 here. Last verse, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, every secret thing. You're not hiding something from God if you're hiding something here today. It's coming out one day, I'd get it out ASAP if you're hiding things from God because you're not hiding them from God. That's a self-deception. Every secret thing, whether good or evil, the good things that are happening, you might say, well, no one will ever know. Oh, God saw the widow. He sees them too. He'll, he'll reward you in time. Don't worry about no one else knows how hard you're serving the Lord. Don't worry about it. God will take care of it. But if you're hiding things, God will bring it out. Find someone to confess to. I'm not saying that you, you go and get in front of everybody. Find elders. Find godly people that you can say, this is in my life. I just want to repent. First, go to God. But you might need some accountability. But every secret thing, it's all going to come out. But here's this, here's this focus in the beginning of verse 13. The conclusion of the whole matter. We absolutely know that we're to seek the truth of God. We know with certainty that we need to receive it and apply it. Verses 11 and 12. 
We know at times we won't feel like applying it. There's times we won't feel like doing any of it. We're so rebellious in our flesh. I'm speaking to all of us here, including this guy standing right here. We are so rebellious in the flesh that in spite of the love of the Lord that he's shown to us, the countless, countless, countless gifts of his grace, countless gifts of his mercy, we will still want to do our own thing. We are no different than children of Israel. We will still, in our hearts, we will want to do our own thing. You can deny it or you can admit it. We will still want to do our own thing. And here's what the preacher concludes. Not me, Solomon. Solomon could have made the whole book, verse 13, is what he's saying. And here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Just cut out the rest of the book and read verse 13. And it would have sufficed to lead us to the same peace and the same provision and protection that Jesus promises. What is it? Fear God, keep his commandments, that's all. That's man's all. He says, this is it. Everything else, if you don't remember anything else, remember to fear God and keep his commandments. Jesus said his commandments are not burdensome. Satan tells us they are burdensome. Satan lies. Jesus tells the truth. Who are you going to listen to? Jesus said they're not burdensome. Here is the backstop of our faith. It's what? It's an awe of God, a respect for God, an appreciation for his authority, an appreciation for his sovereignty, a healthy fear of resisting his grace, a healthy fear of resisting his commands is absolutely needed in us. Did you know that? Solomon is saying, if I've learned anything in my long life and God gave me more wisdom than anybody, here's what I've come to know. We better fear the Lord. He's coming to the end of his life. He said, this I know. We better fear the Lord. Solomon also wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, didn't he? Yeah. You ever read the book of Proverbs? Said it more than once. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The absence of fear in the Lord, you know what happens? Eventually, the absence of fear becomes utter depravity and a steady decline into absolute chaos when there's an absence of the fear of the Lord. Read Romans chapter 1. You can kind of see how that all flows. A.W. Tozer, listen to A.W. Tozer. He said, when men no longer fear God, they transgress his laws without hesitation. The fear of consequences is no deterrent when the fear of God is gone. That's why there can be 30 murders in Chicago in one weekend. No fear of consequences. That's why people can say anything they want on Twitter. They can say anything about anybody. They can curse. They can make albums with filth. They can do all kinds of immorality. They can gossip, slander, do anything. And it all happens, too, in the church sometimes. Not all of that, but some of that. But a lack of the fear of the Lord, again, it's not just out there in the world, in the unsaved world. We know the unsaved world has a lack of the fear of the Lord. Did you know there's a lack of fear of the Lord in the body of Christ? It's why the scripture says that judgment begins in the household of God. That's why it says judgment must begin in the household because there's, there's a lack of the fear of the Lord in the household of God. That's why Solomon's writing to the congregation. He's talking to a congregation that knows God. When the fear of the Lord is missing or it's declining or it's lukewarm, the whole body becomes infected with sin. The whole body becomes infected with strife. Raise your hand. I don't do this often, but every now and then I do. 
Raise your hand if you believe you could have a greater fear of the Lord. My hand is up, not just for... If you believe, you really believe you could have a greater fear of the Lord. A lot of hands up. I think everybody hands up. I think you must know God's watching at this moment. <laughs> is the fear of the Lord growing in your life? Is it growing in your life? It was growing in life for a while for Jonah, and then he stopped having it. So I'm not doing that. God says, okay. Is this a challenge? <laughs> Are you, you taking me on? All right. Let's see how this goes. If the fear of the Lord declines in our life, anger, lust, gossip, complaining, unforgiveness, pride, condescension, hurt feelings, fear, covetous, greed, stubbornness, anxiety, they'll all begin to rise. As the fear of the Lord declines, those things rise. It's axiomatic. Axiomatic. It will happen every single time, in every generation, in every decade, in every millennia. It will always happen that way. God says, don't, don't, don't doubt me on this. It'll always happen. Happen to Solomon too. And it's not just what we begin to tolerate as far as sin and compromise. It's also what then ceases to happen. Loving stops happening. Sharing our faith stops happening. Meeting needs stops happening. Personal prayer stops happening. Gathering to prayer. Fellowship stops happening. When the fear of the Lord is present, there's power. There is protection. There's a peaceful fruit of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this passage. If you're taking notes, write down Acts 9.31. Acts 9.31. Listen to what's written in the book of Acts. This is after Jesus has ascended. It says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace isn't that great? They had peace and were edified. And walking in the, here it is, fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The fear of the Lord was the root of them finding peace, comfort, and more people getting saved and the body growing. Not just growing, but growing healthy. It's one thing to grow. You, those of you that have new babies, you don't want your baby just to grow. You want them to grow healthy. Grow and grow healthy. This is, when you know something is healthy in a, in a body, it's growing with peace and comfort and it's strengthened. But it was the fear of the Lord. Oh, that that would be our personal testimony and a testimony of CCR, Acts 9.31. The people could look at us and say that they are growing because they're walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, edified, strengthened, built up. That's what Christ desires for us, individually and collectively. Is there anyone here that's not interested in peace in your life? You don't want any strength? You don't want God's comfort? You don't want to see more people saved? You don't want to see other people in this community that lives are a wreck, get saved, and marriages come back together? Is there anyone that doesn't want to see that? The only way that happens, Solomon says, fear the Lord. He says, this is the conclusion of the whole matter. This is the ending statement. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. I've thought a whole lot about the fear of the Lord in the past 23 years since I've been saved. I've thought about it a lot because people really don't understand this phrase a lot of times, right? I've thought a lot about less 11 years as, as a believer. People are like, what, does God want me to be afraid of him? Does God want me to be afraid of him? Well, why don't you sit down and let's discuss it? Do you really think that's what God meant? I mean, just stop the cynicism just for a second. Do you really believe that that's what... 
And you'll find that they don't, they don't really believe that God wants them to be afraid of him. So what does God mean by the fear of the Lord? Friday, I'm cutting my grass. I love today's technology. I'm listening to my Bible app. I've been listening to it a lot where I'll just listen to 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Hebrews, James. I'm just listening. Verses just pouring in, just trying to meditate on them. And as I'm listening to the Bible, th this is not a coincidence, as I'm the Scripture, a thought pops in my mind, and I know it was from the Lord, that fear, okay, outside of God, both before salvation and since I've been saved, there are many things that I'm sometimes afraid of. How about you? I'm afraid of certain steps. I'm afraid of certain, Lord, I could never be a pastor when I got called. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm afraid of that. Moses was afraid of it. Send Aaron, send somebody, send anyone, right? You can be afraid, but the thing that actually tells me that I'm not afraid of God, I'll be afraid of certain things. I, I, I don't want to walk a high wire over the Niagara Falls. That, that's frightening to me. If you want to try it, go right ahead. But I'm not, I don't want to skydive. I'll skydive when we come down with Jesus. I'll get to do it eventually anyway. I, I, it, doesn't, it, ha, it offers no attraction to me anymore at all. I used to love to do crazy stuff. I don't care anymore. I'm like, I, I'll get my white horse, and I'll be flying around everywhere. So, but that's frightening to me. But, but when God calls me to steps of faith or calls you steps of faith and things that cause us fear or anxiety, what calms me is when I get into the presence of God. So I know I'm not afraid of God because the very thing that calls me is God. Amen. And this is all, this is how I'm cutting my grass. God's reminding me, you're not afraid of me because I'm the one that calms you through those things. Amen. But you're afraid of those things, but your, your fear of me actually calms you of a healthy respect because I know he's greater than those things. Amen. But then there's this third area that the fear of the Lord, because they're all kind of work in concert. As I mentioned earlier, I know that smoking eight packs of cigarettes a week will kill me with lung cancer. So I have a healthy say, I'm not going to do that. But what about things that I could supposedly get away with that no one would ever see? Well, I have a healthy respect for God. I believe that what God did to Jonah, he would do things like that in my life. So when I have a, a, a oh man, you know, I haven't been drunk in like 30 years. This would be nice just to do and no one would ever know. I don't have that thought. But I'm just saying, if I did, you know, God would say, what are you thinking? I'm there. I'm right there. So if someone says, yes, get, I'm going to go on the Internet and do this and that. And yet, God's, God's in your room, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why you think you're alone. You're not. Amen. Or if you're cussing someone out, you say, well, no one heard that. Yes, God heard it. He was right there. If you said you're angry or you won't forgive someone, the fear of the Lord tells me I better forgive them because God forgave me. I've had, I've had my back stabbed by people too. You probably have as well. But I, ha I can't say, you know, I'm going to get even with them because I know how to really say the right thing to put them in their place. God says, do I do that to you? Amen. The fear of the Lord, God says, I am here to change your thinking. And it's a healthy fear of the Lord. It's important. We can have a fear of things, but the fear of the Lord gives us a peace in those things. And a healthy fear of the Lord keeps us from living the way our flesh wants to or has these instant. The Bible says in the Old Testament that Israel had cravings that they gave into. 
once you have a fear of the Lord, you're not going to give in to those cravings anymore. You're going to say no to the cravings because you have a healthy fear of the Lord. You say, no, God will, whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens. If God doesn't chasten you, then you have a bigger problem. Whom the Lord loves, you may not be in the family of God. God chastens me, and I hope he chastens you, and he usually will do it before we go over the cliff. Coming to a close, Matthew Henry said, all our knowledge must take rise from the fear of God, so must tend to it as its perfection and center. Those know enough who know how to fear God, who are careful in everything to please him and fearful of offending him in anything. This is the alpha and omega of knowledge. I'm not afraid of God. I have a healthy fear of the Lord. My fear of the Lord gives me peace. My fear of the Lord gives me protection. Does that make sense? The fear of the Lord keeps us in the doing commandments and keeps us from the don't commandments. That makes sense. Keeps us in the doing, keeps us from the don't. And with a joyful gratitude, our heart grows in love for Jesus. Let's bow our heads. The worship team comes up. Lord, we thank you this morning that you've given us truth, that you've given us these perpetual truths that we'd press in to know you more. That we'd not just know these things, but we'd apply them. And Lord, that we would all grow. Every hand was raised, Lord, we all need a, a deeper fear of the Lord. Lord, you're going to return sooner than we think. And you said your rewards are with you. And we're, everything's going to be judged, Lord. Every secret thing, every good thing. And Lord, we want to be, as your word says, a clean and ready bride. A clean and ready bride. You raised your hand that you need a more healthy fear of the Lord. If you still believe that, why don't you stand and we'll pray together and we'll close in the song. I, I saw every hand up. My, my hand's up. I didn't pick this message. I said I, I, I was planning on being in Nehemiah, but I feel like the Lord just said, I want you to, and I studied it a few weeks ago, and I want you to preach it, and I want you to present it, because God is calling his church to come clean, to be clean. Even in this church, you know, we left last week in 2 Kings chapter 2, we have a good land and we have a good city, but there's still some bitter waters. There's still some unclean stuff, some of which sometimes the pastor I unfortunately will know about. Other stuff, I say, wow, I wonder what I don't know. I'm glad I don't know everything, God. You know, uh, I'm glad I don't know what all the things that are out there, not only in lives in this room, but in, in the body of Christ. But God is still saying, hey, press in, give it over to me, and let the fear of the Lord do a purifying work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we... We in this room, Lord, we know that you are a gracious and loving God. And Lord, we, we just ask that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Lord, give us an understanding of who you are and who we are. And Lord, may we grow in the fear of the Lord, that it would have a strengthening, the peace and the comfort that we see in Acts chapter 9, the body would grow. Lord, we don't want to quench the spirit as Solomon did for a period in his life, as Samson did, as Jonah did. Lord, as we in this room have done, we've quenched the Spirit too. 
We're all guilty of it, Lord, but I pray that when we see it, your spirit shows it to us, we make it right, and Lord, we stop holding on to the things of the flesh that we can live in the love and the light of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.